Well, friends, our theme this morning, um, and as Tim said, tomorrow night as well, is the whole subject of Christianity and homosexuality. And depending on your kind of church background or where you're from, you may have had teaching on this before. It may not, may not have been something you've kind of heard much on uh, at all either, though. And I want to say a couple of things just as we kind of get going and uh, think about this issue together. Um, I'm aware that it's a very important issue. Um, we're a, a pretty varied bunch uh, here at SMAC One. We come from a number of different countries, I think. Uh, there are many parts of the world now where issues such as a gay marriage are kind of the main political issue of the day. Uh, where I come from in, in England, uh, places like France, uh, the United States, uh, for many countries this is one of the big issues that people are having to think through. And therefore it's a very emotive issue. People have very strong feelings on it. Uh, it's an issue that matters. But as well as being a kind of political issue in lots of places, uh, it is also a very personal issue for many people. Uh, we're dealing with a subject that concerns very deep feelings and longings that many people have. Uh, for many people, their understanding of sexuality is, is very closely bound up with who they think they are, uh, with the whole issue of identity. So it's a very personal issue as well for many people. But uh, I also want to say it can be a very painful issue. Uh, for many people, some Christians, some non-Christians, uh, feelings of, of homosexuality or same-sex attraction can be very uh, difficult. Uh, they're feelings that are not always welcome. Uh, this is an issue I've sort of struggled with myself uh, for my whole adult life. It took me uh, quite a while to acknowledge that and to admit that to myself. It took me a, a while longer to admit that to anybody else. And it can be a very lonely issue to deal with. I think many churches are still at the beginning of learning how to talk um, about homosexuality. And it can be very hard for Christians to say that it's an issue for them. But as we begin, I want to make a couple of, of observations about the Bible and homosexuality. And by the way, there's um, uh, an outline of what we're looking at in the church bulletin. That will help you to, to follow along. And if you want to uh, take notes, there's space to do so. We're going to look at a few different passages this morning. All the references are on the sheet. So again, you might want to take that home uh, to review things a bit later on. But two observations about the Bible and homosexuality. The first is that there aren't that many places when the Bible speaks directly about homosexuality. There are two or three parts of the Old Testament where it comes up and three passages, three or four in the New Testament. Now where it does address it, the Bible has very clear and significant things to say. So it's not good enough to say that because it doesn't come up much, it doesn't matter. Uh, where I come from, there are a number of church leaders who say, well, if there's only a few passages that speak about it, it can't be that important. But actually, if what the Bible says is significant, it doesn't matter how many times it says it. But at the very least, it does show us that the Bible isn't fixated on this issue. Uh, it's not as if the whole Bible from beginning to end is one long sort of rant against homosexuality. That's the first observation. The second is this. What the Bible says about homosexuality doesn't represent everything that God wants to say to homosexual people. 
Uh, the Bible does prohibit any kind of homosexual activity. We'll see that in a moment. But that is not the whole message of Christianity. And so the, part, the passages we will look at in a moment um, are part of a wider context of what the gospel is to, to everybody. That the Bible prohibits homosexuality is not the only thing we Christians need to say on the matter. Now, a while ago, I was um, having lunch with a friend of mine um, back home. He's not a Christian man. Um, he's a gay man. He's been in a gay relationship for about 20 years, I think. And uh, he'd come to one of our um, Christmas carol services. And uh, that had made him begin to think a bit about Jesus. And uh, I had lunch with him shortly after that service. And he wanted to find out a bit about Christianity. And uh, he said right at the beginning of his thinking, he said, I want to think about Christianity, but I want you to tell me now, if I was to become a Christian... Would that mean I would have to give up my gay relationship? And so I tried to explain, I hope as, as gently and as carefully as I could, that I thought that actually, yes, if you follow Jesus, you've got to follow everything that he commands. And Jesus, as we'll see, uh, teaches that the only context for, for sexual activity is between a, a man and a wife. Uh, my friend appreciated me being kind of upfront and honest about that, but it, he was quiet for a moment. And then he looked at me and asked another question. And he said, my relationship is, is the best thing in my life. What could possibly be worth giving up my relationship for? Which I thought was a pretty good question. And uh, it was one of those moments where I sat there thinking, okay, Lord, I want to, to honour you here. I want to have something good to say. Can you please help? Because uh, if you ever have conversations like that, you don't immediately know what to say. And the verse that came to my mind, I'd like you to quickly turn to now. It's Mark chapter 10, uh, and it's on page 1021 of our church Bibles. Actually, it's the page before that, 1020. Mark chapter 10, it's a well-known um, passage. Uh, Mark chapter 10, page 1020, and verse 28. Uh, we've just had the rich young man coming to Jesus and, and then going away disappointed. And in verse 28, Peter says to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. Now, we don't know the tone of voice Peter had. We don't know if he was kind of boasting and saying, you know, we've left everything. We're the guys. You know, we, we are model disciples. Or it could be that Peter was, was sort of saying this in despair, saying, Jesus, we followed everything. Uh, sorry, we've, we've given up everything. You, you know, are you going to be worth it for us? But however Peter asks the question, Jesus answers it in the same way. In verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, 
and the last first. Uh, It's a verse I keep coming back to because Jesus says in this verse that whatever we give up in order to follow him, he will replace. And it's a great verse, I think, for my, my friend in the middle of that conversation because Jesus is very honest that there will be things that we will have to leave in order to follow him. Uh, Jesus doesn't try to hide that. He doesn't bury that in the small print. He's very honest about that. There will always be a cost to following Jesus. And so our first point this morning is that the gospel is a costly message. And friends, that is not just the case for those who are gay. Uh, It is true of all of us. All of us have to give things up in order to become Christians. Do you remember Jesus said on another occasion, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Uh, The gospel is not meant to be easy for any of us. Um, All of us have to give up our own sense of who we are, our own identity. All of us have to give our life to Jesus. And if we're giving our life to Jesus, it means we're taking it away from ourselves. Um, Since I've started giving talks on the whole subject of of homosexuality, it's been interesting. I've had a few, uh, well, actually quite a lot of Christians have come up to me at various points and said, well, you've particularly had to give up a lot for for the gospel, haven't you? It's been, it's been particularly costly for you. And I always feel slightly uneasy when people say that because actually Jesus demands the life of all of us. And so if we ever think the gospel is unfair to some particular group of people, it may well be because we've not properly counted the cost of following Jesus ourselves. So Jesus is honest that the message he brings is costly. Uh, There will be things we'll have to leave behind. And for those who experience homosexual feelings or or live a sort of gay lifestyle, there will be particular things that need to be given up for Jesus. Uh, Jesus, in his own teaching, reinforces the Old Testament teaching that sex is a gift from God for a man and a woman to enjoy in marriage. Um, In Mark chapter 7, verse 20, no need to to turn this up now. Well, if you actually do, if you're in Mark 10, do turn back um, a few pages to Mark chapter 7, uh, page 1016. And uh, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus talks about some of the things that make us unclean in God's sight. Uh, So Jesus says there in verse 20, uh, Jesus says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. In other words, what makes us dirty in God's sight is the very stuff that comes from our hearts. That is where sin comes from. And Jesus lists a few examples of the kinds of things that make us unable to come into God's presence. And Jesus includes in that list sexual immorality. 
Now, the fact that he includes it shows that it is a serious issue, but the fact that Jesus includes it in a list shows it's, it's not the only issue that can stop someone having fellowship with God. Uh, Jesus includes envy or coveting or deceit or pride, a whole range of sins. But he does include the phrase sexual immorality. And it's a word, we, a phrase we see a number of times on the lips of Jesus. And it's a, it's a translation of a word Jesus uses called porneia. That's where we get the word pornography from. And the word porneia is a term in the Bible used for all sexual activity outside of marriage. So when we see the word sexual immorality like that in the, in the Gospel or in the, in the New Testament, it is talking about all sexual activity outside of a heterosexual marriage. That would include adultery, it would include sex before marriage, it includes prostitution, uh, it includes masturbation, and it includes homosexual sex. And so every time you see those words sexual immorality, that's what it includes. And Jesus says sexual immorality, all of those things are sinful. They defile us. Uh, they are one of the things that, that mean we can't know God. They make us unclean before God. And so we can't say that Jesus has no problem with homosexuality. Uh, there are some people who say that because Jesus never uses the word homosexuality. People say, well, Jesus obviously doesn't have an issue with it. But when Jesus talks about sexual immorality, he does very clearly include it. He may not name it, but in the words he uses, he very much includes it. Now, just imagine I was um, feeling so happy to be with you this morning. I am happy to be here this morning, but just imagine I was feeling so happy to be here this morning that I said that every single person uh, who came along today, who was at Smack One, that I was so thankful that you had come along that I, I made the promise that I'm going to give every single one of you a hundred ringgit on the way out. That's how pleased I am to see you. I'm not going to do that, by the way. <laughs> But just imagine I made that promise. Everyone who is here this morning can come up to me after the end and, and get a hundred ringgit. Now, you would, I'm sure, be very pleased to, to come and say hello afterwards and shake my hand on the way out and receive your, your hundred ringgit. But notice I've not mentioned your name. I've made a promise that includes all of you and yet which names none of you. And the point is, I don't have to name you to include you. And so even though I've not mentioned Judy's name, Judy could come up to me afterwards and say, where's my hundred ringgit? Because the promise is for her. And similarly, Jesus doesn't name homosexual activity in any of his teachings. But in many of his teachings, he does include it, along with any sexual activity outside of marriage, homosexual behaviour is wrong. It is sinful. So that's the first thing just to say under the teaching of Jesus. The second um, needs us to turn back to Matthew chapter 19, our second uh, reading 
uh, from just earlier, which is page 993 in your Bibles. Do turn, please, to Matthew chapter 19. Uh, It's a passage where Jesus talks again about God's purposes for marriage. Matthew chapter 19. Uh, You may remember from the reading, at the beginning of that reading, the Pharisees come up to Jesus, they try to trick him, as they often do, and they say to Jesus, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any cause? And the Pharisees would have thought that is a brilliant question for trying to make Jesus look like a fool, because divorce was very, very common among the Jews. And in fact, many Jewish leaders have said, you can divorce your wife for pretty much any reason. Uh, We've got evidence that certain Jewish rabbis at the time of Jesus said that you could divorce your wife if she burnt, burnt the supper. Or if she didn't satisfy you in the bedroom, you could just divorce her. And so they asked this question to Jesus, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any reason? Because if Jesus says no, it's not lawful, he'll be unpopular with all the people who get divorced. But if Jesus says, yes, it is lawful, they can say, well, he's very liberal and he's not very biblical. So they think they've got a brilliant way of catching Jesus out. But look at what Jesus does. Uh, Verse 4, Jesus answered, Have you not read? Now, if you you ever find yourself arguing with a Pharisee, I'm sure you, you won't, but just in case you did, the Pharisees were so proud of how well they knew the Scriptures. And so for Jesus to say, Haven't you read? is actually a bit of an insult to them. Jesus is saying, Have you you read the Old Testament? Do you you know the scriptures at all? And in verse 4, Jesus goes back to the first two chapters of Genesis. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's taking us back to Genesis 1. When God created uh, humankind, when he created the world, he made people into men and women. He created them male and female. And then notice how Jesus continues in verse 5. The one who created them, male and female, said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now Jesus is doing a couple of things here. Uh, Jesus, firstly, is showing us in verse 5 what Genesis 2 says. He quotes from Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife. That's Genesis 2, verse 24. But notice Jesus says that that is the word of the Creator. Uh, The one who created them in verse 4 is the one who said in verse 5. So Moses may have written Genesis 2, but as far as Jesus is concerned, if Moses wrote it, God said it. And so what we're dealing with really does matter. We are dealing with what your creator says about why he's made you male or female. Uh, Secondly, the thing Jesus shows us is that marriage is a product of gender. So verse 4, God made humanity male and female and said, therefore... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. In other words, because we have gender, therefore we have such a thing as marriage. 
making humanity male and female is the reason God has instituted the covenant of marriage. Marriage exists because gender exists. Were it not the fact that we were made male and female, we would not have marriage. And the reason is, God has made us men and women because there is no greater complementarity between two human beings than that which exists between a husband and a wife. Uh, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Genesis 1 doesn't say that God created them introvert and extrovert or left brain and right brain. No, he created us male and female. That is the ultimate distinction that exists between us. And it is because there is something fundamentally about that relationship between male and female that means a man and a woman can become one flesh. And so marriage has to be heterosexual. So given some of the debates going on in in different parts of the world about trying to to legalise gay marriage, biblically, gay marriage doesn't exist. Uh, Actually, it's a contradiction in terms. By definition, marriage must be heterosexual. So Jesus reaffirms God's creation plan and pattern that we see in Genesis. Uh, God has created sex for marriage, and marriage is between a man and a woman. Uh, Which answers the Pharisees' question, because Jesus says actually those two become one. And therefore what God has put together, man should not separate. So Jesus reminds us just how serious a thing marriage is. And notice how the disciples respond in verse 10. Uh, Jesus shows how serious marriage is and the disciples say, well, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Uh, Jesus is, is frightening his disciples. They're saying, well, for goodness sake, Jesus, if marriage is this serious, it's, it's better to steer clear of it, isn't it? But look at what Jesus says next. Verse 11, Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. You see, it's interesting, and he then goes on in verse 12 to talk about eunuchs. And it's interesting because the moment the disciples talk about not marrying, Jesus talks about being single. He talks about celibacy. The disciples say, well, boy, it might be better not to get married. And Jesus doesn't say, you know what, you're right, try, try living together for a bit instead. Or try playing the field for a bit. No, as soon as the alternative to marriage is raised, Jesus talks about singleness. In other words, as far as Jesus is concerned, the only godly alternative to marriage is to be celibate is to abstain from any kind of sexual activity. Uh, The eunuchs in the ancient world were those who were single. Uh, Verse 12, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, 
And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, some people are single because that's just the way they are and have always been, and they're just not going to marry. Some have been made eunuchs by men. Some people are celibate because of something that has happened to them in their life that means it's not realistic for them to be married. And Jesus says there are others who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. There are people I know who are single because of the particular opportunities it gives them to serve in God's kingdom. I think of people I know who are missionaries in different places where the fact that they've gone there means it's not likely they'll be able to get married. But they've done that because they want to serve the gospel. But the point is the only alternative to marriage is singleness according to Jesus. And therefore, if you're someone who experiences attraction to people of the same gender, or experiences homosexual feelings, uh, Jesus says your two alternatives are the same as everybody else's, heterosexual marriage or singleness. Now that teaching we see reflected again and again through the New Testament. We're not going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 6 Uh, Now we'll come back to that um, tomorrow night. But there are a number of passages in the the rest of the New Testament which specifically prohibit any kind of homosexual activity. But the point is, the gospel is going to be costly to those who are gay. Uh, The Bible makes it very clear that any kind of homosexual activity is prohibited. And so for someone who experiences homosexual feelings, the gospel is costly. It means those feelings are going to go unfulfilled. Uh, Those will be sexual desires that you will never be able to express. Uh, For some people who experience uh, same-sex attraction, it is possible to get married, but for many it isn't. And so for some there may well be the prospect of long-term singleness and and some of the struggles that come with that. So the gospel is a costly message uh, for those who are homosexual. But that's not the only thing Jesus said to Peter back in Mark 10. Yes, the gospel is costly, but the second thing, our second point this morning, and a bit more briefly, is this. The gospel is also worth it. It's a costly message, but it's also a worthwhile message. Do you remember Jesus' words to Peter? No one who leaves behind will fail to receive. Uh, Just turn back to Mark chapter 10, if you wouldn't mind. Um, Page 1020. You're getting your fingers exercised well this morning. It's very good for them to turn all these pages. Mark chapter 10. Again, verse 29, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now, there there are two negatives in that sentence. Jesus says, there is no one who will not receive. 
In other words, everyone who does have to leave certain things for the gospel will receive. And Jesus talks about receiving in two ways. He says that we receive in the age to come. He talks about that at the end of verse 30. In the age to come, we will receive eternal life. All who turn to Jesus will receive eternal life in the new creation. But Jesus promises more than just eternal life in the age to come. He makes a promise about this time, verse 30, of receiving a hundredfold now, in this time. So, in other words, the message of the gospel is more than just, you know, grit your teeth and wait for heaven. Jesus says, as we leave things behind for him, even in this life we receive far more than we give up. Uh, Jesus says we receive a hundredfold. In other words, whatever you give up for Jesus, you are never losing out. It is never a bad deal to follow Jesus. Now, Jesus is not saying, therefore, life is going to be really easy as a Christian, because if you notice, he slipped in the word persecutions there. Amongst the things we receive as we follow Jesus will include persecution. Following Jesus will put us on a, on a collision course with the values of this world. But he does say we will receive a hundredfold. What we give up for Jesus, he replaces in godly kind and in greater measure. And notice the kind of blessing Jesus is promising here. It is largely relationships, isn't it? Uh, you may have to leave house or family for the sake of the gospel, but what you receive is house and family. Which means, friends, that actually the, the great blessing Jesus gives us in this life is Christian family. He puts us into a community of his people. Uh, he is promising us brothers and sisters, fathers, mothers. He's promising us community. And so that gives us, I think, as a church, a wonderful opportunity. Because it means those who do have to leave certain relationships behind for the gospel, actually we get to prove this promise of Jesus by embracing them and by including them. Uh, that will be true for all sorts of different people. There, are, there may well be people, some of us know, who have come uh, to Jesus from a particular background where becoming Christian means you are cut off from your family. In which case, we as a church have to be family for that person. And the gospel promise that Jesus makes here is not just a, a challenge uh, to those who want to come to faith, but it's a challenge to those of us who already have. That we are to be the family that Jesus is talking about. We are to be the place of true community, of true acceptance. 
And uh, when it comes to the issue of, of homosexuality, I just want to suggest three ways in which the church can be a blessing uh, to those who are from a gay background who come to Jesus. And uh, you'll see those on the handout. The first is we, we need to make it easy to talk about this issue. Uh, for many Christians who battle with feelings of same-sex attraction, there is a very deep fear of talking about that to other Christians. Uh, a fear of being rejected, uh, a fear of being excluded. And so we need to make it easy for people to talk about. And I hope having a session like this in the seminar tomorrow will make it easy for us to talk about this issue. Uh, there are people in SMAC who battle with feelings of same-sex attraction. I know that because they've contacted me and shared that with me. And my prayer is that they will feel very able to share that with you, with one another here. And so we need to make it as easy as possible to do that, to make sure it's not an issue where there's any kind of stigma, that it's safe to talk about. It's okay to battle with that. Uh, the American preacher and uh, writer Tim Keller uh, talks about how church should feel like a waiting room for a doctor and not feel like a waiting room for a job interview. Okay, the waiting room for a job interview, everyone is, is dressed very smartly. You're trying to look like you're really, really competent, that you've got everything together. You're trying to look very, very impressive. You don't want to admit to any kind of weakness or limitation. But the waiting room for a doctor, the assumption is that everyone who's in that room is sick. And so you're not trying to make yourself look like you've got everything together. You're there because you need help and something's wrong. And that should be the feeling we have in church. We've come here together because all of us are broken. Everyone here is spiritually sick. That's why we say that prayer of confession every week. And so we need to make it easy to share the struggles that, that each of us have. So let's make it easy to talk about our, our weaknesses and our battles. Uh, secondly, the church can be a blessing to those um, who feel homosexual feelings by honouring both marriage and singleness. It's very easy in, in Christian cultures, I don't know if it's the same here in Malaysia as it is back uh, where I come from, it's very easy to kind of, to honour marriage and to slightly denigrate singleness. And so we rightly esteem marriage and the, and the gift that it is and we want to honour it. But sometimes we do that in such a way that makes people who aren't married feel like they're kind of of a lower status. And so it's very easy for unmarried people in churches to feel like they're sort of loose ends that other people want to tie up. I remember um, recently bumped into a, a Christian lady I hadn't seen for about 10 years. She used to be my boss uh, when I worked in a coffee shop about 10 or 15 years ago. And I hadn't seen her for 10 years. And I bumped into her at a, a Christian event somewhere in, in England. We were catching up and I was asking about her kids uh, they had been teenagers when I'd last saw her, so I knew that they would now be in their kind of late 20s. And I was asking what they were up to, and she said, oh, the first one is married and the second one is engaged. And then she said, so they're both sorted out. 
Which made me think, well, you're saying that someone who's not married isn't sorted out. And I know in Malaysia some of you are from cultural backgrounds where there is enormous pressure to get married. And you're, kind of, you're letting the family down if you're not married. Now there can be ungodly reasons to remain single, just as there can be ungodly reasons for getting married. But if we're taking the teaching of the Bible seriously, we need to remember that both marriage and singleness are gifts from God, means by which we can be of service to God and means by which we can point to the gospel. And perhaps above all, we need to remember that Jesus himself was single. Uh, The most complete and fully human person who ever lived was not married. And so we mustn't make people who aren't married feel less complete as humans for that reason. Uh, Those who do battle with homosexuality in our church family may well need to stay single for the rest of their lives. And as a church family, we need to honour them and do all that we can to encourage them not to make them feel like they should be married. Um, I have a a good relationship with some of the older ladies at my church back home. They tease me and uh, I tease them back. And uh, I think it was once after a church wedding, uh, one of these little old ladies came up to me, this was a few years ago, and said, it could be you next. And uh, it's the kind of thing little old ladies like to say after church weddings to to younger single people. And uh, I discovered that the best way to stop them saying that is at the end of a church funeral to say to them, (laughs) it could be you next. Uh, We need to honour both marriage and singleness. And finally, as we finish, we need to remember that the church is family. Uh, In 1 Timothy 3, Paul talks about the church being the household of God, the family of God. The New Testament is full of references to fellow believers as, as being brothers and sisters. And friends, that's not just a token way of speaking. It's not just metaphorical. We are to be family to one another. As Christian men and women, we are united to Jesus and therefore we are united to one another. And that is real. Jesus is our older brother. We are part of the same family. Children of the same Heavenly Father. And therefore we are to be brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters to one another in our church congregation. Those of us with our own biological families need to involve the wider church family in our family life. Uh, No parents can be everything their children need them to be. And so the nuclear family needs the wider church family, and the wider church family needs our nuclear families. And so those of you with your own family, with those of you who are married and with children, what a gift it is when you open up your family life to others in the church family. And friends, it can really help those who are are battling with loneliness and singleness, and that's not just those who struggle with homosexuality, those who are single for other reasons, to be included in the family life 
of their Christian friends. Uh, We're to treat one another as, as brothers and sisters, not as distant cousins, certainly not as strangers, but as family together. To be the brothers and sisters, the mothers and children that Jesus promises to those who have to leave their own family behind for the sake of the gospel. Friends, I'm going to pray in a moment. We will look uh, in more depth at some of these matters tomorrow night. Please do come back tomorrow. One of the things I'm going to make sure we have uh, plenty of opportunity for tomorrow is to ask questions. And I know that there will be a number of us who want to uh, think about this issue and ask different questions. There will be plenty of time for that tomorrow, so please do come back. But let me pray now for us. Our Father, we pray that you would help us uh, as a Christian community to live out the teaching that you have shown us this morning. We thank you that as fellow believers in Christ, we are brothers and sisters, we are one in Christ. Father, we thank you for what the Bible says about homosexuality. Uh, We thank you that your word is clear and that your word is good. Please help us to believe it, help us to be clear in our own thinking. And for any of us here this morning who do struggle with homosexual feelings, please help us to have great comfort in the gospel. Help us to be holy in the way that we live. And help us all as a church family to respond in grace and truth and love and kindness to those for whom this is an issue. Help us to honour one another and encourage one another. In Jesus' name, amen.